0: I remember just, it was like a physical thing in my, in my stomach that almost pulled me in. I was like, I like, almost couldn't comprehend what she was telling
1: me. From the team behind Stylist, this is Nobody Told Me. Stories of life, love, grief, success and failure, and the lessons learned by the women who survived to tell the tale. I'm your host, Lisa Smzarski, Editor-in-Chief of Stylist. In today's episode, we're joined by Nicola Mendelssohn, CBE. Nicola is Facebook's Vice President for Europe, the Middle East and Africa, where she's worked for the last seven years. Throughout those years, she's run initiatives to empower women both inside and outside the company, and she has won countless awards and accolades across the globe for her influence and power in an incredibly competitive and fast-paced industry. Her home life is just as busy. Nicola is a mother to four children and is married to the British lobbyist and Labour political organiser, Jonathan Mendelssohn. For the past four years, Nicola has also been living with an incurable blood cancer called follicular lymphoma. In that time, she has undergone two years of gruelling immunotherapy, while dealing with the emotional and mental turmoil of living with a poorly understood cancer. Through it all, Nicola has kept positive, and kept on working. This is Nicola's story in her own words. I'm Nicola
0: Mendelssohn, and nobody told me that I would carry on working after being diagnosed with follicular lymphoma and incurable cancer. I grew up in North Manchester in Prestwich, a very warm, loving, tight family. I was really interested always in the creative industries and I was really taken by acting and drama and I love reading. So it was definitely gonna be something in that world. So I met John uh, at university, who was the man that would go on to become my husband. We shared the same values. Uh, He challenged me, I learned from him. I have huge respect for him. Yeah, and I love and adore him. So John and I moved to London and actually we got married not long after. So I was actually married by 22. And I had the first of our four children when I was 25, which when I look back on now is pretty young. And together now we have a thriving family, brood of four grown up children who bring us a huge amount of joy, a daughter and three sons. I've always been very attuned to my body. And I found a tiny lump, like tiny, smaller than the size of a pea in my groin. And honestly, I didn't think anything of it because nobody had ever told me you need to check for lumps in your groin. You're taught as a woman always check your breasts and check, you know, if, if there's anything going on there. And it wouldn't have been for the fact that I've got a girlfriend who is also my doctor. And I had mentioned it to her and she dismissed it as well. She said, it's probably nothing. You know, girls get that sort of thing. But if it hasn't gone in two or three weeks, you know, I'll have a look at it then. I'll never forget, I had um, a really busy day. And I called her and I said, "When, when could she see me? This was three weeks later. And she said, I'll see you at 6.30. So I did that day one of the biggest speeches that I have done at the CBI conference. And that night, I went to see her. And I remember lying on the bed and she examined me. And because I know her so well, I, I saw that look go across the face and, I, and I, I'll never forget saying to her, you don't like the look of that, do you? And she said, no, I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't. She goes, I don't know what it is. So I need to work out where to send you, but we need to get that checked. And my heart <laughs> sank. So I went to see, um, as it turned out, a gynaecologist. Went by myself because I didn't think it was an issue. And he, I met with him and he didn't think it was anything. And I'll never forget, I had my, my sort of coat on ready to go and he said, look, while you're here, it wouldn't do any harm to do a CT scan. And I was like, oh, you know, that's a bit of a surprise, but okay. I remember messaged John and said, you know, they want me to do this and I'll be home later. I didn't have my phone on me for a few hours for whatever reason, that's unusual too. And I remember when I came back to my phone, there were, a, I can't even remember how many umpteen missed calls, and my that's when I suddenly started going, oh, this is not good, and I went to see John, and I, and I could see I had missed calls from the doctor and my friend, and so I phoned her, and she said to me, have you spoken to the doctor, and I said, no, she said, I'm coming over, remember, she's a really good girlfriend, and she came around, and she only lives around the corner, and her face was ashen, and... I sat with John and she said, um, the scan the has shown that you've got tumours all up and down the inside of your body. I was just absolutely shocked. I remember just, it was like a physical thing in my in my stomach that almost pulled me in. I was like, what, like almost couldn't comprehend what she was telling me. And she said, we don't know what it is, um, but you need to get examined and you need to, you know, we need to work out what it is biopsies, et cetera and that that was the the moment where we started to understand that what this might be would be w- was something that was serious. It's never good to get news like this on a Friday because it turns out what I needed really to have was a PET scan, and you can't get those at the weekend, and so that was without question. The worst weekend of my life, because in the absence of knowledge, all you can do is Google, right? And you Google the very worst things that it could possibly be, which led to me a weekend of not sleeping, eating, crying, and projecting all the very worst things that that could possibly happen. That the life that I'd had just a week before, the day before, a few hours before, was totally different to the life that I was now gonna have. And the life I had just was was just full of misery. It was pain, it was treatment, it was a taking away of everything that I loved, cared about, enjoyed, practised. You know, I wasn't gonna be there to support my kids as they grew up. I wasn't gonna be there, you know, for my husband, my parents. I wasn't gonna be able to do things that I enjoyed and nobody nobody had told me or could have imagined that I would be able to carry on working with an incurable cancer. As it was, I was lucky I guess that I was able to get a diagnosis in in, in less than a week which is unusual for a blood cancer and I was told that I had follicular lymphoma it's a incurable cancer of the blood, and that this was going to be with me now for the rest of my life because it wasn't something that can be cured. I didn't have a single symptom. I didn't have a single symptom, which is why I guess it was also such a shock. There was none of that, oh, now I can understand why. It just was a shock. My mum actually said to me, are you joking? I was like, mum, I wouldn't joke. She couldn't believe it either. When I'd heard the word cancer before, it's about how you're going to go out and beat it and you're going to treat it or you're going to cut it out and all of that. Nobody told me that actually there are different types of cancers that some you can live with because they grow slower. Some might not need treatment for a while. Some there is no advantage to actually treating early. And so it was with follicular lymphoma, which if I were to have had treatment on day one or in a couple of years time, it doesn't actually change my overall life expectancy. So after weighing all this up, we made the decision together that I wouldn't have treatment in 2016. That's when I was diagnosed, November 2016, that we would watch and observe. It's called watch and wait, or as follicular lymphoma patients call it, watch and worry. And they would observe me and see what the growth of the cancer was and see how that went. I'd made a resolve to myself on the Monday when I saw the state that I put myself in. And I had done that. Cancer hadn't done that. I had done that in my own mind to say that is not a way that I was, you know, however long I was going to have, I was not going to allow that to happen to me again. And, and that was a really conscious decision that I made that I wouldn't allow myself to spiral downwards again with the what happens, what if, how about, etc. Because it can only lead to negativity. And Actually the one thing I know is certainly when you're battling something like cancers, you the more that your mind can be in in a in a strong and positive place, the better it is for your healing. If that was the worst weekend of my life, telling the kids was the was probably one of the hardest moments of my life because as a mum and as a parent, you want to be there for your kids, you want to be strong for them and that's how they'd only ever seen me. And here I was, I'll, I'll never forget that day. We, we'd gathered the kids together. It was a Sunday. And we sat them around the table. And I couldn't get the words out. John had to help me. And what floored me more than anything was when Zach, my youngest, our youngest, who, is, who was 11 at the time, just asked, turned around and he just looked at me with just sadness in his face. And he said, Mum, are you going to die? From that day on, I've said that I would always talk about it, I would always be open, they could always ask me anything. And when I check in with them on it, which I do, they say they take their cues from me. And they say, you know, you seem all right, Mum, you're getting on with it, you're working. So if you're all right, we're all right and we're here for you. I mean, I'm lucky I work at a company that, Facebook is incredibly caring. The people at Facebook, the leaders are incredibly caring. After getting the first sentence out, there was a lot of tears because they're my friends as well as my work colleagues. It was very emotional. It was very hard. And actually, I'll never forget Sheryl Sandberg saying to me, you know, what can we do? How can we help? Take the time off. And I remember saying to her back, I don't want to take the time off. I haven't got anything to do. I'm not having treatment. So the last thing I would want is to actually not be at work because then I'd literally just be sitting at home almost twiddling my thumbs worrying about dying. So work was supportive and for which I've always been incredibly grateful. A few people did reach out and say, you know, have you thought about giving up work? Maybe you should stay at home. And I just remember looking and going, "Why would I do that?" You know, I love what I do. I I thrive in it, I enjoy it. It gives me huge energy, satisfaction. And I thought that would be the last thing I wanted to to do. And especially once I started to understand how I was going to think about treating um, or not treating this cancer, then why would I take away something that is so important to me that I love and and adore? It's pretty old-fashioned at work to think that work is one thing and life is another. You are just the same one person. And so if you have extraordinary things going on in your life, positive and negative, the fact that your work colleagues might not know about that, the stress that it can put on you is enormous. And so it never occurred to me that I wouldn't tell people uh, something like this. In the same way, it wouldn't occur to me not to tell people if I had wonderful news to to share. I would hope the people that I I spend as much time with as I do at work, as all of us do at work, would, would be able to understand me better. But also that it just took away an extra pressure. Because if I had to do my job and cope with having cancer, And nobody know. I just don't think I'd be very true to myself or I'm not sure how good that stress would be on my body as well. So it was never a consideration not to. In the past, we have set up these expectations that almost that our leaders are not human, that, you know, everything's fine. They've got it all nailed. It's all perfect. And I don't think that helps anybody. I don't think it helps the leaders and I don't think it helps the people that maybe aspire one day to be, you know, the leaders of companies because it's not really true to who people are. People are vulnerable. People have good things happen. People have bad things happen. And I especially think at this period in time where so many people are struggling with with mental health and challenges there, the more that we can role model being open, being empathetic, being vulnerable, I think the easier it is for helping everybody to understand, well, if that can happen to that person, well, maybe it it takes that pressure off. Maybe that's not so bad that, that I'm experiencing this too. I had to have a number of scans, and so there is a a real thing called scanxiety when, when that moment comes up. And one of the pre- almost protection tactics that I used with that is I wouldn't fixate on a date. I wouldn't know it was this date in the month. I just knew it was there, and I sort of forgot the date. And I didn't tell lots of people that the scan was coming up because you get that kind of collective buildup of anticipation. And I just didn't wanna do that to myself. I thought if it's gonna be bad news, I'll deal with it on the day that it becomes bad news, not in the weeks leading up to it. Probably the day that floored me was the day when I realized I was gonna need chemotherapy. Because in my head and through the research that I'd done, I thought I might get two years of watching and waiting and I got 18 months. That was, a, that was a challenging day. I wasn't quite ready for I hadn't quite prepared myself in, in, for it. My treatment wasn't wasn't as bad as I had anticipated it was going to be. With my chemotherapy, the one I had, I didn't lose my hair. That was, I think for a lot of people, especially for a lot of women, that's, that's the thing that, you know, they struggle with a lot. There were a few days in the... It was a monthly treatment, and there were a few days in the month where I literally couldn't do anything. I had an exhaustion, the likes of which I've never seen. I physically couldn't do anything. I couldn't concentrate, couldn't, you know, couldn't watch television, just, just sort of had to lie there and, and get through it. But actually through, I was able to work through my treatment um, albeit in a, in a reduced capacity, but I, I was glad I was able to do that because it created a bit of normalcy in what was quite an abnormal period. You would go in very early in the morning. They take your bloods. Then you have to wait to see if your bloods are strong enough for you to receive the treatment. And then they test your, everything. They test your blood pressure, they, you know, and they're checking you all the time, every 50 minutes, half an hour, just to see how you're going. And then you have to sit for many hours, five, six. Months. The first day was about 10, 11 hours, it really took a long time. And they did all think I was nuts, but I would work through the day. And so I actually, <laughs> I... um. It was a whole day of just sat there. I could have probably sat there watching Netflix or or doing something like that. But I actually did work calls um, from, from the uh, from the clinic where I was having the treatment. And as I said, they did all think I was nuts. But you're probably picking up from me that I do quite enjoy what I do. And I think actually work was an amazing distraction for me. I actually found those days were I was some of my strongest, the days I was actually having treatment. Again, some people can have very bad reactions as the drugs are going in. Mine would come about four or five days later when the steroids that they give you, you don't have anymore and suddenly it hits you. I would really not put, try and put too much stress on myself. I would make sure that I would go for a walk and sometimes I would sort of have to be dragged around the block, literally would be a walk around the block. That various family members uh, w- would take me on. I found support in so many different ways. The little unexpected message from someone you hadn't seen for a long time, the voice note, yes, the bunch of flowers, the very practical things. Somebody I know sent me just a box of ginger sweets that said this will help. Somebody sent me a Pair of woolly socks, just such nice, thoughtful things that people had bothered it was just really, really special. Some people by the third you know the third month it's gone completely mine hadn't. I remember when I went in for the uh for the results of the final scan after the six months, I'd actually managed my expectations that it wasn't going to be good. And I remember when he told me that it was good, you know, that there was no evidence of disease. And I was sort of like, oh, right, okay, (laughs) Okay, that's good, right? That's a good thing, because I'd really managed it down so that I wouldn't have been more crestfallen and disappointed. So from a medical perspective at the moment, I am now just in a waiting game. I am waiting to see when this cancer will start to grow again. And there is nothing at the moment in, in science that can give me any indications when that will be. Some people have treatment and the treatment doesn't work. Some people have treatment and it comes back within six months. Some people have treatment and it can be five years, 10 years before it comes back again. So there is no knowledge out there at the moment that can help. And that's part of the reason why it's exactly a year ago that I decided to set up a foundation called the Follicular Lymphoma Foundation to find a cure for this cancer. With the advances that there is in medicine today and science, biotech, I absolutely believe, and by the way, it's not just me who believes it, the top scientists, researchers in the world believe that this is a cancer that could and should be cured. They can see pathways as to how that might happen, and what it just needs is the money to be able to do that. After I'd been diagnosed, I suddenly had this epiphany going, I wonder if there's a Facebook group for people living with follicular lymphoma. And actually there was, there was a tiny group, um, a few hundred people that had been set up by a lady called Nikki uh, in Australia. You know, fast forward, she and I have become very firm friends. Together we've, you know, I co-admin the group. She's the founder, but I'm the co-admin with her. And we've grown the group now to be over 7,000 people strong. And it's the largest group uh, that's ever existed of people living with follicular lymphoma. And it is the best place to go uh, for advice on how you live with it, how you cope with all the things that I've been talking about in terms of how you cope with an incurable cancer. You know, as life is as unpredictable as it is, and especially during this time, especially during the pandemic, giving back is sometimes where you can actually find yourself, where you can find your constant And I actually think you get the most back when you're giving to other people. So that is why I am using every way that I can think of, including this conversation today with you, to galvanise more people, to get more support, more interest. There is an army of people out there that that want to help. And one of the things that my family and friends have told me is that they've loved that they've been able to actually help by, by supporting the foundation. So they've put on you know we've had zoom birthday drinks where people have done a donation to the to the foundation they've done uh wearing purple wigs people even did a whole purple baking cakes extravaganza and i think it actually helps when the, the people that love the person the most feel that they're able to contribute in some way um to hopefully one day finding a cure mm. was first diagnosed, we talked about the illness a lot. It was ever present. And I remember a cancer survivor saying to me, there'll come a day where you forget you've got cancer. And I remember thinking, I can never imagine a day when that will happen. I can never imagine not checking my body for lumps and bumps. And actually that day, time does help. Time really, really does help. Now, that's not to say that you know, that I'm not hyper paranoid about any changes that I see. I am, and that's never gonna go away. And maybe I was a bit too lax in the past on that, I don't know, but, you know, there are days where I don't think about cancer anymore, and and when I remind myself that I do, I'm like, oh, I do think of that person's voice telling me that. When I look ahead to the future, I do feel, I do feel positive, I do feel hopeful. I do think that if you point enough people in in one direction and I I am able to help convene some of the brightest minds in the world to focus on finding a cure for follicular lymphoma, then yeah, I feel hopeful that we'll do that. I am grateful for every single day that I have. It could be worse. It really could have been worse. And so I make sure that I eke out every bit of joy that I can every single day that I'm lucky enough to be here.
1: You're listening to Stylists Nobody Told Me. I'm your host, Lisa Smizarski, and you've been listening to the story of Nicola Mendelssohn. I've known Nicola for a few years now, and I've always been in awe of her unique combination of optimism and pragmatism, professionalism and empathy. She is a unique and strong leader, but who behaves without any of the barriers of hierarchy. When I last saw her, we were chatting and I asked how she was doing. She told me that she was travelling loads for work and then quickly how lucky she was to be doing so. Rather than replying, like so many of us do, about how busy or stretched we are, she has a rare and beautiful optimism and ability to focus on the positives. She then spoke a bit about spending time with her family and then she ended our chat by saying, I just need to find a cure for cancer now, Lisa. We laughed a bit and I said to her, what I say to you now, If anyone's going to do it, Nicola, it's going to be you. Hearing Nicola's story in her own words reveals she has tackled her cancer like she has tackled life, with quiet but determined strength. When she describes her plan to watch and wait to see if her cancer grew, I was struck by the strength it must take to do that. It absolutely takes your breath away. Then she goes that one step further, she shared a private journey to create a community. She wanted to break down barriers in the workplace or give comfort to others going through the illness themselves. And it is this which is proof of her remarkability and resilience, something I've always known her to have. Nicola has had to confront a fact we all know to be true, but try to forget. None of us know what tomorrow has in store but her story and the learning she takes from it are testament to the fact that even if the future or perhaps even the present looks nothing like you expected or planned, it doesn't mean that that new reality can't be something extraordinary too. Thank you so much for listening to Nicola's story today. To help Nicola raise funds for a cure for this currently incurable cancer, please visit the Follicular Lymphoma Foundation at www.theflf.org or visit the charity's Facebook page at Follicular Lymphoma Foundation or Instagram page by the same name. We have a wealth of brilliant women sharing their life lessons throughout this series. So please do subscribe today to make sure you don't miss Briony Gordon talking about how she learned that there's no shame in being sad, Gina Knight on how losing her hair to alopecia led to a truly successful career, or the brilliant Sinead Burke on why refusing to be operated on as a child was the best decision she ever made. We'd also love to hear your comments and suggestions of stories you'd like to hear. So please leave this in the podcast style or DM us on the stylist Instagram. Don't forget you can find even more inspiring stories and life lessons on our website stylist.co.uk. Thank you for listening to Nobody Told Me.